Well, hey, Northside family, it's great to be able to see you today, uh, to be able to come right to uh, your living room or wherever you are at the time. I know the last uh, several months of us being able to do this has been a blessing and a challenge all at the same time. But as uh, Sam mentioned in the announcements, boy, it's going to be great when we're all able to come back together. Really looking forward to that. Uh, I hope you've been enduring the heat. It's a little crazy out there, uh, the way things are going on weather-wise and uh, kind of melting down just a little bit. Every summer always has a few challenges with it. Uh, I had a little bit of a challenge I kind of been wrestling with and in denial with for a while, a carpal tunnel surgery. So I'm going to try my best to preach left-handed today if I can. I, I know what will happen. I'll kind of make sure and, and give gestures each way, but uh, it's doing fine. But it, uh, if you've ever had that, you know, it's just a little bit of a frustration. Now, I really appreciate so much uh, Nathan's selection of the series and titling it The Echoes of Eternity as we deal with the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. It's really challenging, and there's just something about that in the book of Ecclesiastes uh, as we talk about that and, and the, the echo that God would have of truth for all eternity in this life and in the next. Uh, I didn't know, if I would have named it, I probably would have called it Reality Bites or something like that. Little sound bites, little of the kind of nuggets of wisdom to hold on and some warnings here or there. But the whole idea of understanding eternity, for some of us, it's a little bit foreign. foreign. We don't want to talk about it or think about it. Now, if you're a believer, yeah, you, you really want to look forward to that, but we don't want to get too much caught in being so heavenly oriented that we're no earthly good. So this study today, as we talk about the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, and we will hop around a lot. So if you got a Bible you want to follow along, it'll, it'll probably be a little easier to see the scriptures as they appear on the screen. But the whole series of talking about Ecclesiastes and next week, Job, then Proverbs and the Song of Solomon will really be, I think, a great time to have a moment to pause and say, God, what really do you want me to know as I live my life, especially in a reflective summer in the season that we're in right now? Now, the idea of eternity is so fascinating. Uh, in Ecclesiastes 3.11, it literally says that he has made everything beautiful in its time. God's done that. And he's also said eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. You stop and think about that for a moment. Eternity really is in our heart. Sometimes we get so preoccupied with all of life and weighed down by the burdens of life that we don't think beyond this life. But God has put things in our heart and sometimes it's hard for us to really understand. Paul says in Romans chapter two that we need to be able to understand what he has put in the essence of our heart. He's talking about those outside the Jewish faith at that time, the outsiders who were the Gentiles. He said, who've never heard of God's law, follow it more or less by instinct, and they confirm its truth by their obedience. They show that God's law is not something alien imposed on us from without, but woven into the very fabric of our creation. In other words, our hearts down deep have an understanding of what God's law really is. He has set eternity in our heart and he has set his law in our heart, even though perhaps we don't know all the specific specifics until we read his revelation in the, the word of God. There's a very famous verse in Ecclesiastes. 
And sometimes it gets misunderstood and different translations say it differently. But it's uh, uh, the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes and it's really begun by opening of someone introducing. Most people for years have thought it was Solomon. Now they wonder if it's a Solomon type of a teacher back then or whether he set that up and, and uh, taught it indirectly. E either way, he simply says in chapter one, the second verse right off of the start, he says, everything is meaningless, says the teacher completely meaningless. Now, if you just stop there and hold on to that thought, you're going to find Ecclesiastes can be a pretty depressing book. But if you grew up with the King James Version, like I did long ago, you know that it was translated before vanity. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. All is just prideful. And in the whole book, he begins to get down to the meaning of what life is all about and what to expect. But the Hebrew word for what's translated as meaningless or vanity is the word havel. And the word Hebrew word havel means smoke or vapor or breath. And the thing about smoke is you can see it, but it's fascinating. You can't quite control it and it's going to shift around and blow around. And it's going to be maybe a dense fog or then it's going to lift off. And it's very deceiving. And the teacher here in Ecclesiastes says, as I've gone through life, I realize that the pursuit of things can be very meaningless if that's the only thing I'm pursuing. So today we want to try to break this down a little bit to, to make the complexity of Ecclesiastes and a little bit of a lament of the difficulties in life into three different parts. Number one is, is simply this, that life is seasonal. There's different seasons and you and I know that we're in a season right now. That, that's quite different from others. Uh, life is full of surprises, and we got to be ready for that. Everything we expect to happen isn't necessarily going to happen. And finally, God is our only stabilizer in life. I've heard it said years ago, when we give our life to the Lord and we trust him, then our, our past is forgiven, our future is secure, and God helps our present to make sense. He's the only stabilizing factor that we can have in our life. So let's deal with part number one. Life is seasonal. And I would think in this coronavirus season of our life right now, everything is so intense. I mean, we could talk about that a little bit more, but we seem to be pretty obsessed with it because we're trying to navigate through this very intense season of life. 2020 will go down as one of those years that everything seemed to just go a little bit crazy. The perfect storm seems to all come together. And here's what the Bible says in chapter three. He says, you have to expect seasons and appropriate things for seasons. He says, for everything, there's a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, time to kill, time to heal, time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve, a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to turn away. A time to search and a time to quit searching. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be quiet and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Now, for those of you who had a little time in the 60s, like me, who have a few miles on you, you remember a group called The Birds did a song. They did a couple of songs. Jesus is just all right with me. And they did this song called Turn, Turn, Turn that literally took 
Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 and turned it into a whole song. They twisted it a little bit at the end where they said a time for love and a time for hate, a time for peace. I pray it's not too late. They had to make it rhyme. You know, you got to give them credit for that. But long ago, God said, life is seasonal. And, and what can happen in our life is if we don't recognize the season or if we're in denial about the season that we're in and say, you know what, I don't want to have to deal with that right now. I'll think about that later. When we resist the season that is upon us, then we find out it's going to catch up with us later. So how do we live? How do we go through all those, uh, the, the variety of those experiences and how do we know the difference and how do we uh, hold on to it and yet not get stuck in that particular season? And today I want to suggest my first point would simply be this. If we embrace the season we're in, if you and I can kind of get our, our, our hands and our heart and our head all around that, we will be able to embrace it so we can enjoy it or endure it. Now, it would be fascinating to have a moment to sit and have a cup of coffee around a table and talk and just ask, and maybe you'll do that with your small group and say, well, what season are you in right now? Is it a, a, a time of uh, a planting or a time of harvesting? Uh, you got little kids uh, under your feet at home or you got kids you're sending off to college because the tears are going to be different <laughs> that you have in those moments, the challenges that you and I will have, the time to keep and time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, the, the quietness and the speaking, determining, God, what kind of a moment have you brought me into right now? So for us to not be in denial, but to embrace that. And we need the help of God to embrace every season in life. And we need the help of our family and our friends and the body of Christ to, to embrace and, and navigate and process and, and not get caught on one side or the other or, or get stuck to go through these seasons. But if you think all the seasons are just going to be smooth sailing, you, you and I will be in for quite a bit of a shock. And, and that's why he begins this teaching in Ecclesiastes of saying, understand there's a time for everything under heaven. God has appointed that. He's allowed that. He's permitted that. Don't deny it. Don't hide away from it. And realize that some seasons of life will be more intense than others. Now, the second part of understanding in, in Ecclesiastes is, is to realize that life is full of surprises. I mean, don't we know that? Just the moment you think you have things figured out over here, all of a sudden uh, there's something that kind of uh, gets messed up and, and we get derailed for a moment. And, and we're surprised by this and surprised by that. Here's what he says in chapter 9, verse 11. He says, I've observed something else under the sun. He said, the fastest runner doesn't always win the race. And the strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. The wise sometimes goes hungry. And the skillful are not necessarily wealthy. And those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. It's all decided by chance, by being in the right place, 
at the right time. It, it is one sometimes surprise after another where we thought, I thought this would happen. I thought that would happen. I thought that would happen by now. Can you believe this happened? Or can you believe that team won the game or that team lost the game? Uh, I remember a whole year and a half ago, I think, when Duke was playing UofL. If you remember that game that was at UofL, uh, Zion was playing there with uh, 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 oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm on the wrong one. Was it Duke, North Carolina? I should have made this one straight. Anyway, I'll have to consult somebody else on that. I, I, I believe it was, it was Duke. And what happened was they were behind all the way. U of L was pounding them the whole first half. And I'm texting Nathan all the way through saying, you're not going to believe what's happened here. You're not going to believe it. UofL's winning. UofL is winning. They're ahead. I texted him the whole second half because he was in a meeting. And, and all of a sudden, uh, I said, you're not going to believe it. They're behind. They're behind. They're behind. They finally lost. And it was uh, amazing. I don't know how I had that kind of brain fog. It was Duke. Okay, so we, we, we remember that now. That happens at 65. Like I said, you never really know what kind of surprise is going to happen, even while you're preaching with one shot. There's something about looking at a team and saying, I can't believe that happened. How in the world did that come about. And, and the Bible here says, please understand, life is filled. It's filled with surprises. It's filled with shocks that we look and we think, wait a second, how in the world could that have happened? Here's what he says in chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would deny myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Here's a guy on the verge of depression. And he had everything. He'd accomplished so much. God had blessed him in incredible ways. But it seems that those things were his pursuit. He denied himself nothing. Said, I want to grab everything that I can in life. And all of a sudden he's singing with B.B. King, the thrill is gone. I, I don't know what happened. Why do I feel such anxiety or depression or what might be called uh, existential anxiety? Something's missing, but I don't know what it really is. And then you move on in chapter 7 and you realize uh, you can almost hear you 2 and Bono in the background singing this. Though I had searched repeatedly, I have not found what I was looking for. Still hadn't found that. You know, the sad thing is sometimes in life we can feel that way if we pursue the wrong thing and we want to make sure we have that and have that and all of a sudden we get that and we find out that we've left all these other things that were very important by the side and we miss that because we think that's going to fill us up. Bob Buford had a book years ago called Halftime and he said what happens for many men in the first half of their life is they have this this desire for success. And then at halftime through their life, they realize whether they get success or not, they realize perhaps they've been you know, pursuing the wrong thing the wrong way. He says, and there's a shift in their life and they begin to pursue significance. What can I do? What can I contribute that will outlive me? 
years ago with the Promise Keeper movement, uh, when we lived out west, I, I was at uh, a gathering they had at uh, USC, Southern California, the big Coliseum there. They had a fellow by the name of Ed Cole who was preaching to all oh, goodness, 70,000 men in, that, in that, that, uh, that big stadium. And he said, you guys have to remember in your life things change and there's disappointment and we make mistakes. He said, one thing that I, I'll remember, he said, in a man's youth, most of our sins are all about passion. They're, they're things we feel so intensely about, we act upon, we don't really think through. The sins of a man's youth, he says, are about passion. The sins of a man's middle years are all about pride. We want to think we've done everything right. He said, but the older we get, what happens is the sins of a man's older years become all about prejudice and resentment to other people. And he said, guard your heart. He said, because you look, you look here in Ecclesiastes, you can see that there's this disappointment when all of a sudden God wasn't in the, the forefront of everything that's going on. He has a list of what I would call the empties, these things that he's pursued and gone after. And he, uh, they, fortunately, you can remember, they all begin with the letter W. He says, I, I worked and worked and worked, did a lot of hard work. And it was kind of satisfying, but not completely. He mentions wine and says, oh boy, that's going to take the edge off, but not completely. He mentions women. He had 300 wives and over 600 what would be called concubines, which would be a, a, a little more of a, a political marriage. And so he's got a thousand ladies uh, that call him their husband in that way. And, and he, he says, I really thought that would solve a lot of problems. I got a feeling it created a few more. He pursued wealth and no one was more wealthy. And yet he found if that is your only pursuit, that will be an empty, empty bottle, an empty pursuit, wisdom. You, you can have all the wisdom. And he said, it guided me well, but just having wisdom, he said, we're all going to die. The wise and the foolish, the rich and the poor, that's the great level. Or he mentions uh, about the ironies that he, he, he has listed in, in the, the, the book in chapter 3, verse 16. He says there's evil in the courtroom. He said that shouldn't be. Uh, it's ironic that you would think a system that, that's going to make sure everything is fair and just, there's evil that penetrates in there. Chapter 5, he says those who love money never have enough. You would think that would be enough, but no, there's a, a desire if we're, we don't guard our heart that we want more and want more and want more. Now the next verse is in chapter 7, verse 3. And it, it's one that I use, I, I would say about every funeral that I will speak at, it's, it's because it's a verse and a passage that has shaped my mind and my heart. It begins in a verse before that where, where it says that it, it's better to be at a funeral than a wedding, basically. It's better to be in a house of, of sorrow or mourning than a house of feasting. And here he says why. Because sorrow is better than laughter. For sadness has a refining influence on us. Sadness has a way of sobering us up a little bit. I, I realize we have this one moment, typically at a funeral, to, to hear what God has to say, to receive comfort and to get perspective, to give thanks, celebrate the life. But it becomes this one moment. I remember... A funeral I did years ago uh, out west, there was a, a, a family, they owned a carnival, they lived in Las Vegas, but they toured in the Midwest, and, and uh, most family didn't come to her church, but the daughter did, and we knew her, she's very faithful, and her father passed away. Uh, 
uh, during the off season, right around Christmas time. And she gave a call and said, my family doesn't come to church, but would you mind to, to do the funeral for my dad? And I said, I, I'd, I'd love to help out any way I can. We, we love you and appreciate you here. Let me come over, get to know your family, and we'll, we'll do what we can. And I got to know all of the folks, and they, they called me the towner because that's what carnival folks do. If you're not one of them, you're, you're a towner. I teasingly got along with them and had a great time, found them to be salt of the earth kind of people. But when it came time for the funeral service, uh, she said, you got to realize there's going to be a lot of, of entertaining people there. A lot of folks that don't go to church. And she said, you got one shot. And I said, okay, I'll be ready for that. And I preached as best as I could for 15 to 20 minutes about living life God's way, understanding the, the truth of Ecclesiastes. There are different seasons. There's going to be uh, all sorts of surprises. Hold on to God no matter what. And they forgot to tell me at the end they were going to have uh, a special song. They told me at the very last second, oh, yeah, by the way, the guy's going to do a song at the end. I thought, that's fine. Except what they had was an Elvis impersonator who came up to sing at the end of the funeral. And he sang the Frank Sinatra song later recorded by Elvis, My Way. <laughs> so here I've been preaching for 20 minutes about living life God's way. And he tried to outdo it in three minutes in a song. Fortunately, he was a young Elvis who felt nervous at funerals and he hyperventilated and passed out after the first verse. So I was able to come back and say a little bit more about that. We have one shot. We all have one chance to speak truth into a moment. And here's what the Bible says, in the time of grieving, there's a moment that we will have our hearts turn towards God. That sounds very ironic, but I've found it to be very true. People listen a little more intently what's said, what's experienced at a memorial service and sometimes at a wedding because we're just ready to go on with the party. And it gives God a chance. And, and the Ecclesiastes writer here, the teacher, he says, you've got to hold on to some of these ironies because they will catch you off guard. He says, when crime is not punished quickly, people feel it's safe to do wrong in chapter 8, verse 11. He says, when justice is delayed, that gives a false sense of, hey, we, we get away with that, we'll do this. And, and it becomes a real problem. And then he moves into the realities, what I call the golden nuggets, and say, here's a truth I can count on, I can bank on, highlight in my Bible, let me know where it's at. And he says, dust to dust in chapter 3, verse 20. In other words, our bodies came from dust, God made us from the dust of the earth, he breathed the breath of life into us, and man became a living spirit, and we have a soul. But make no mistake, we're all going to die, we're going to return to dust. In chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, he has the 3 2 1 model. Three is better than two, two is better than one. He says, if you're all by yourself, you're going to be lonely. Who's going to help you pick up, get picked up if nobody will be there to help? And two will be better than one. But then he says, but if you can build relationships, keeping God in the center of it, basically, and a cord of three strands will not easily be broken. Chapter 5, he says, you can't take it with you. There's never a hearse that's going to follow, or pardon me, a U-Haul that's going to follow a hearse that you can't take all the things. He laments in different places saying, I worked hard, I worked hard, they worked hard, they worked hard, and we leave it for somebody else to enjoy. Chapter six, he has another little nugget. He says, enjoy what you have. Don't desire what you don't have. Don't always look and, and see, boy, I wish I had that. Well, I'm happy with this, but boy, I still want this. 
I love chapter five, the first two verses. He says, God likes short prayers. He said, just remember, God's in heaven, you're on the earth, and let your words be few. Get to the point. We, we don't have to try to impress God with a big, long, flowery prayer. We just have to come to him with the, the innocence and the simplicity of our own heart. Chapter eight, he says, the wise find a way, and they find the time to do what's right. I find that verse very convicting in my own heart. Chapter eight, none of us can prevent our spirit from departing. None of us can, can, can just say, I, I'm, I'm not gonna allow my spirit to leave my body when the time of death comes. Chapter nine, he says, live happily with the wife you love and she's God's gift and your reward. All of us will need it who are married a time of marital redirection to say, value one another, listen to one another, love one another deeply from the heart, honor one another. Chapter three, he, he says, I concluded there's nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. People should eat, drink, and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are the gifts of God. He wants us to enjoy. He wants us to enjoy family and meals and friends and be able to not try to find every satisfaction in every pursuit in this life, or we'll find that to be like chasing after the wind, because it is the Hebrew word havel. It is a vapor, it is like smoke, it's like breath. It's here and then it's gone. Now he doesn't say make sure it's a fruit cup and yogurt. He doesn't say it has to be just a cheeseburger and Coke. It might be a big filet and a Cabernet or a double drive through at the Chick-fil-A. It doesn't really matter. He says, be grateful for what you and I have and give thanks to God. And then he winds it down. Part three. Part three, he says, you have to know that God is our only stabilizer. Our relationship with God, our respect for the creator of the world is gonna be the only thing that will anchor us. He says in chapter 12, please, if you ever start reading through Ecclesiastes, you might wanna read chapter 12 first, but don't miss chapter 12. Because at the very end, he says, that's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. He ties it together by saying, if we're gonna have life make sense, if we're going to enjoy and endure as we engage with the seasons, if we're gonna not allow the surprises of life to overwhelm us, it's gonna be because we allow God to stabilize our life. Now, there's some really important questions that we need to ask. And a little bit later, we're going to get ready for our communion time. So if you want to get ready for that at home with bread and juice or whatever you might have that represents the body and blood of Christ, please feel free to go ahead and get ready for that. But I want to ask you to walk through some questions with me. If all this is true, life is seasonal and I'd better engage and, and let God guide me through, and it's gonna be a lot of surprises and I'd better hold on to the truth and take warning of the things that I need to be aware of. Then question number one, how do we live? How do you and I now live? How do we make sense out of this? How do we put one foot in front of the other? How do we take a step back and, and get perspective? How do we do that?
And the second question is, we have to ask ourselves, have we lost our footing? Maybe right now in your life, you're feeling, uh, boy, or just intensity of the season we're in right now, along with other things and other things that are going on, it's just really hard. Maybe personally, you've kind of lost your composure, lost your footing, maybe locally, maybe biblically in God's family, maybe nationally we have lost our footing, maybe globally we have lost our footing. All of those are good questions. The third question, will you and I who have a faith in the Lord, Will we stand on Christ as solid rock and foundation or will we have a tendency to sink into the quicksand of the godless culture surrounding us? Notice it's a capital G on Godless. Uh, we, we live in a lowercase g, God-filled, idol-filled culture, but one loving creator who designed us and made us in his image and put eternity in our hearts and the law of God on our hearts? Will we stand for him with one another and love deeply from the heart, reflecting his love to our world? Will we find our joy, our strength, our peace, our purpose in that phrase used in chapter 12, in the days of your youth, you better remember your creator. Will we together help each other remember who God is so that we can fear him and love him and trust him and sustain our belief with him? Or question number five, will we fade as Solomon did in 1 Kings? 1 Kings 11, for you just think Ecclesiastes might be a little depressing. 1 Kings 11 is very depressing for me because he allows his wives to, wives to turn his heart after other gods and not be fully devoted to the Lord as his father David was. You see, how the mighty have fallen. Solomon knew God, but he got so caught up in pursuing pleasure and this and meaning and all those other things, he didn't allow God himself to be enough. If you ever wanted the difference between David's prayer uh, and Solomon, his, his son's prayer. Solomon prayed for wisdom. David prayed for God's presence. He said, you're enough for me. That's why David was a man after God's own heart. Number six, will we allow ourselves to remain at odds with each other, which is Satan's primary strategy? In other words, let's take a look at what's going on in our heart and the heart of our nation and everything that's going on and the intense situation and season we are in. And what can happen is we can get at odds and remain at odds and not want to get out of that, but find our identity in animosity. And that can be a very dangerous thing, especially in the life of a believer. In Galatians 5, Paul says, for the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware of destroying one another. Paul went on to say, in, in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile, that there isn't any bond or free, no ethnic difference, no economic difference, no male or female, no gender difference. In him, we all together are one, which leads to a final question. Can we take the penetrating truth that God gives us in his word that confronts us right where we are, can we be humble, grateful, 
and compassionate. Now, if that's on the screen, say that with me. Humble, grateful, compassionate. One more time. Can we be humble, grateful, compassionate? There's a path to that. God calls us to humble ourselves before him. When we do, we become grateful because we see who we are, we see who he is, and then we can share the love that he gives us with other people. But if you and I at any point in our life refuse to do that, we won't be humble, grateful, and compassionate. We, we will be prideful, entitled, and resentful. The book of Ecclesiastes is one big caution light. It's a very bright yellow saying, be careful, watch out. Watch out that you don't head this direction. Don't, don't find all of your meaning in the things of this life, but with fear of God and a trust in Him and a, an obedient heart and a humble heart, let Him take you where you need to go. Now, uh, most of you know I, I love songs. I love verses. I'm really more of a hook guy. I don't remember a lot of words to, the, to songs. I just remember... Ah, a little phrase that's the hook. But when it comes to old time church hymns, man, I, 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 I was, you know, doing all I could do as a kid in church to sit awake, stay awake and sit there and listen and listen. I heard them over and over and over. And I love last verses. I just love last verses. Now, a familiar hymn might be to some of us, how great thou art. We know how that kind of goes. But do you know the last verse of how great thou art? Oh, it's, it's, it's very exciting. It, it simply is when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I will bow in humble adoration and there proclaim my God, how great thou art. That's a killer last verse. It goes right into the chorus, then sings my soul. There's another old hymn I love, It Is Well With My Soul. And if you know the story about that song, it was about a fellow who wrote it, but he didn't write it until after he was in a, a moment of grieving and a cross-Atlantic trip going back to Europe because his wife and children had died in a shipwreck prior to that. And he was headed back. And the captain came to him and he said, you need to know your family was lost just somewhere about right here in the Atlantic. And he went down and he wrote this song, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's hard to say and it's hard to sing sometimes. But the last verse, if you've ever lost a loved one, you understand the longing of the last verse. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump will resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it's well, it is well with my soul. One more song and then communion time. How many songs does this guy know? Don't get me started. One more. It's a song in the 70s by a Christian band called Petra. They were kind of the early Christian rockers, and they had a song called The Road to Zion. And in that, it's pretty simple. There is a way that leads to life. The few that find it never die. Past mountain peaks, graced white with snow, the way go, grows brighter as it goes. And of course, there is a road inside of you. Inside of me, there is one too.
No stumbling pilgrim in the dark. The road to Zion's in your heart. The road to Zion, the city of God, is in your heart. But here's the last verse. And may it prepare our heart to come around the Lord's table before we pray. The last verse to the road to Zion, he simply says, sometimes it's good to look back down. We've come so far, we've gained such ground. But joy is not in where we've been. Joy is who's waiting at the end. And he awaits for you and I to trust him, to love him. And now as we pray, he awaits you to examine your heart and remember his sacrifice for you and me. Let's pray together. Father, we ask your your blessing on the moment that we have right now. We realize that in our lives there's sometimes so many different seasons. We, we don't know what's coming next. There's so much intensity, especially at a time like right now. And it's really hard to be clear about these things. But I pray, Father, this one thing we would know deep in our heart. And that is your love as you showed it to us by sending your son, Jesus. So right now, Father, we allow the bread to represent his body that was broken for us. We allow the juice to represent his blood. And we draw close to you. We take a look at our heart, our faith, our struggles. We own where we are, God, before you. And we ask you to forgive us strengthen us, remind us, renew us, and make us more like you. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name.